0: Yo, Mike. I'm Kylie
1: McDaniel from Fangraphs.com and on the other line he puts the yuck in Instructional League it's Eric Longenhagen. Hello <laughs> We're really killing the energy here at the top um, It is isn't one of the three topics this week but I just came from my first Instructs game of the year and I know you've been to a couple already so you want to do like a quick quick rundown of what we've seen, sort of big takeaways Yep oh, Are you shuffling notes. through notes? I like the, the tactile uh, audio feeling
0: with that omnidirectional microphone, man.
1: Picks up everything. You might be able to hear my dog chewing on something in the background right now.
0: Uh, okay, so Milwaukee. Nash Walters, third round pick from a couple years ago, hasn't seen a mound in like 18 months. Uh, was 91.94. Flashed a plus slider. Uh, command evaporated very quickly. It was a huge issue for him before he got hurt. He had uh, TJ. Let's see. Oh, Aaron Ashby. Uh, Midwest Juco guy who they took in the third round this past year, 2018. Lefty left with a breaking ball, right? Uh, Yep. Uh, and that's what he is. Velo's up a little bit from the spring. 91-94, pretty tough angle. Um, yeah, it's a plus breaking ball. Changeup was average, uh, slightly above uh, at times. Caden Lemons, 2017. What was he, second or third round for them in 2017? I think it was second. Big high school righty, like six seven, a lot of projection. Velo is has just kind of held firm since I've seen him in pro ball. Has mostly been 90, 92. He was again the other day, uh, with like an average slider. And then the standout Milwaukee position players are like some of the recent J2 kids. Larry Ernesto uh, has not looked super great. Carlos Rodriguez has looked has looked fine. These are two like. Outfielders, is the guy with, like, it's a bat and there's some physical projection. He's a little bit bigger. Uh, Rodriguez is, like, the small, twitchy, uh, polished center field guy with speed. They both look just okay.
1: I'll say Larry is one of the least common July 2 names, I feel like I hear.
0: Larry, yeah.
1: A lot of Carlos's, a lot of Rodriguez's, not a lot of Larry.
0: Moving on to Texas, I have a lot on these guys. I saw Cole Wynn. Uh, 2018 first rounder and Owen White, their second rounder. I saw them twice already in the last week, the first two professional appearances because Texas held out all their uh, draft picks. Um, their first outing, neither of them threw breaking ball, they were just fastball changeup. They've both been basically 91 to 95. Uh, White looks really good. Tail, sink. Uh, It's an above-average plus change-up. The breaking ball is comfortably average, slightly above, throwing a lot of strikes. Win threw one curveball yesterday. Uh, It was plus 2,700 RPMs. The track man had his extension topping out at, like, 6 foot 11 inches, which is very significant. Uh, So, yeah, it's like – with. Wynn got knocked out around a little bit yesterday. His inning had to be rolled, but he looks good. Uh, mid-90s, a lot of changeups. clearly a point of emphasis. More two-seamers yesterday. Uh, I saw Mike Matuela, 94-98. Above-average breaking ball, command was below average. Uh, AJ Alexi topped out at 97. And then uh, Reed Anderson, same thing. Hans Kraus sitting 94 uh, and then, like all the Texas outfielders, Julio Pablo Martinez looks looks fine. Leodi Taveras looks very good. Pedro Gonzalez looks fine. Uh, Emmanuel Clase, who they got from um, San Diego at the deadline for Brett Nicholas, ninety-seven, ninety-nine, with a vertical action slider in the upper eighties, like eighty-seven, eighty-nine. Uh, I don't know if he's Rule Five eligible or not. He might be. Which is part of why an arm like that might have been available for Brett Nicholas at the deadline, because uh, he might be subject to a roster crunch. Um, but I'm not totally sure about that. Uh, and then speaking of, oh, I saw Brady Singer yesterday. 91 94, uh, really advanced command. Curveball was average, flashing above. Only threw a couple changeups. One was plus, the rest were kind of bleh. And yeah, I think that. That kind of is a is a solid overview. I've also seen San Diego and stuff, but not as much. Um,
1: Do you feel like any of these guys clubs? have like changed on the board? I mean, what you described as Singer is like pretty close to what uh, what I've seen over the last couple of years.
0: Maybe Owen White. I think we were probably a little low on she, Owen White.
1: What you described sounded much closer to Cole Wilcox than I thought it would.
0: Uh, AJ Alexi's throwing harder, but it's still a, very much a relief look. Yeri rodriguez with texas uh is someone who will probably move up he's probably like a 45 future value guy for us this offseason uh command it's a low slot but it's like 92 95 touches six with breaking ball command it's like an average breaking ball average change up and just the fastball plays well in the zone it's a weird arm angle anderson tejeda a lot of power there still striking out a whole lot oh, and archie has joined me at the computer so if you hear a cat that's what yeah he's not the one i have to take to the vet it's our older one, Esther, who's not doing so well, so that's why this might be an abbreviated episode. But what about you? What did you see today? Uh, I got
1: Detroit and Atlanta today. I'm gonna go head over toward Tampa and get a couple teams the next few days before I uh, head out of town. Um, Pache was playing today. Uh, played the whole game. Still, still had like he's made a lot of progress, but he still, um, you know, probably swings a little too much early in the count to, like, you know, borderline pitches. Like, we've talked about a lot of guys with, like, plus back control. Like, their whole career have been able to get by hitting those sorts of pitches. And he probably needs to lay off of it a little bit. And it's still a little more ground balls than you'd like. And I think he's more of a 70 runner now. It's, it looks like he may have lost a step as he's sort of, you know, beefed up and gotten stronger. Which was a little bit of what I saw when he was in high A. That I, I wasn't getting the same kind of run times. But it's it's still comfortably plus to plus plus. Like, it's not, it's not a real issue. But yeah, he also, you know, he was... Hitting the ball pretty hard too, so it wasn't like a negative look. But there's still, for a guy that we have, you know, up there pretty high already, it's interesting that he's still got, you know, a ways to go. Alex Jackson looked a little better, uh, receiving wise and a little better at the plate than what I'd heard this year. Uh, CJ Alexander, who's a later Juco pick in the draft this year, that. Didn't have a lot of expectations, but had a very uh, high BABIP-fueled uh, positive pro debut. Was uh, pretty good again, although I think he's a little bit more of like a first-base, left-field platoon. So it's it's still sort of an extra guy, but, you know, still hitting. Um, Israel Wilson showed flashes. Still didn't quite put it all together. Uh, on the side, nobody really stood out. I mean, Derek Hill, Kingston Leniac were in the lineup. Um, didn't really blow me away or look especially different. Uh, the guy I wanted to see, Wenzel Perez... Came in for one pinch hit AB late in the game, and I don't. He handled the ball a little bit, but didn't didn't get a defensive chance. Uh, he got one fastball away and sort of back control of the single into left field. So it's pretty much what I would expect from him. He's sort of a um, what is he? 18 year old uh, rookie ball, and then got promoted to either the APE or the New York Penn League, and has the look of one of these guys that might be the sort of Willie Adamas. Doesn't exactly look the the type, but has the sort of skills to make it work on the mound. Carlos Guzman, a uh, conversion guy uh, for the Tigers was pretty good. He, he actually got to Lakeland this year, as a 20-year-old. Uh, he was 2 to 5, flashed to 55 breaking ball and a 55 changeup. The breaking ball looked close to average. Um, I've been told he he would hold mid 90s at some other starts this year, so it sounds like he's probably 35 plus or low 40. Um, the rest of the Tigers pitching was just okay. Braves had Odalvi Javier who's Probably still not a 35-plus, but he's somewhere in that general area. He seems like at least a good org guy. Patrick Weigel, coming off of TJ, had four appearances late in the year through today. Uh, he's ninety-two, ninety-six in one inning and through one breaking ball left it up. When he's at his best, he's 95-100. I think the arm speed's there, but still a little rusty coming back. Uh, and then I think probably the most surprising thing was Tristan Beck, who um, I was texting with you while I was at the game was very good as a high school senior and early in college, and then had sort of injuries and consistency. You know, I think the physicality may have backed up a little bit, had some issues. He was 94 to 96 for one inning and then a little more like 90, 94, the second inning, but flashed a good breaking ball. I mean, he had a sixth breaking ball in high school and he showed it once or twice again today. Changeup was a little firm. Command was probably still a little below, but just the, the body, the arm action, the motion, everything seemed a lot more positive and more consistent than it had been in the past. So seems like that's moving in the right direction. Um, yeah, that was pretty much it today, except for, you know, just checking up on some sort of 35s that may or may not get on the tail end of a list, but those guys aren't usually very exciting. Cool. <laughs> that is a uh, way to sum it up.
0: I mean, I wanted to go, I wanted to head out today, Oakland, um, there are very few East Valley instructional games, and Oakland had one today, but I just have to make this trip to the vet, so it's so like, I think probably might have thrown today, so I'm going to double back and check in on some of that stuff, but... But yeah, it's uh, the way it's set up here. There's there are far fewer games here this year than there have been in years past. As teams move away from playing games uh, and into doing other stuff, and uh, so I'm not going to miss a whole lot, which is nice because most days there's just one game to go to. But I'm still kind of disappointed. But, you yeah, know.
1: It definitely seems like the trick because I remember like five, six years ago, a team or two would cancel instructs and it was like because of like, you know, budgetary stuff or whatever and everyone was all offended. And it seems like it's slowly moving toward either not having it or having it, you know, <clears throat> just be camp days and sort of practices and off field and training in the classroom, things like that. And teams that do have it maybe have more camp days and fewer games or just do that traditional aspect for one week instead of multiple weeks? I mean, is there a reason for that or just that there's more I, – I tend to feel like there's sort of different ways to develop a baseball player other than just playing a, a crap ton of games. And so teams are just leaning on that a little bit more and not trying to overwork them.
0: Uh, yeah, and I think the teams that are moving to a more classroom-centric environment have differences between what they're doing – it's just it's not one of those things where it's public, you know, like I can't see what Seattle is doing, I can't see what Anaheim is doing or what the Cubs are doing or what Cleveland is doing, that uh the other teams aren't. It's just not I'm not in the room. So I'm not sure. Um there are people who think that um that games should be some should comprise some part of it just because everyone's gonna learn this stuff differently. Not everyone thrives in a classroom environment, but then, you know, they've had several months of playing baseball games. So,
1: yeah, I wonder how much of it is, uh, like, sort of an espionage level thing where, like, we don't want scouts watching our guys when they're working on stuff and putting in bad reports. So it's harder to trade them if we want to trade them versus we don't want to wear them down. They've already been playing six months of games. Let's, you know, let's keep our hands on the guys that we care about or want to develop, but not
0: necessarily run ragged. It's probably, and a it's still bit 102 weird. here. It's it, yeah. it's not fun. To like I mean, just, I was I was sitting in
1: the, I was sitting in the shade in Orlando, and it was still like making comments like, "Hey, we could have been standing in direct sunlight if they played on a different field, but this still kind of sucks." Because <laughs> as much as like, it seems like the different groups of players in instructional league is there's the the top prospects that we all care about there's the sort of guys that were just acquired either in the draft July 2 or a trade that the team needs to get to know. And we're both very interested in both of those groups. And then the third group is just sort of like good makeup org guys to fill out the roster so you can play some games. And it's like... um a reward to those players like there's always gonna be some guy throwing like 88 to 91 in these games which you would wonder why is this guy here but you, you you never have enough guys in groups one and two to fill out a roster so no matter how like i just you know named almost 10 guys in the game i watched today that were interesting and it was you know there's no tv or anything so it's like going and going and over and they'll roll some innings and it's done in two hours but it's still really hot and like half the guys don't really matter so you can still find something to kind of you know zone out about if you really want to draft stuff <laughs> Yeah. Well, so I was gonna say that this is normally the point where we would talk about like what did we write this year or what this week or whatever, uh, but what we did, oh, is, that's right. yeah, we did a prospect land page and we did a new draft board. And so our first topic, because we can't really talk about a prospect land page on an audio medium, I think, uh, is talk about the draft rankings. So we, uh, well, we on the phone for like three hours uh, comparing notes and hammering this thing out. And there's, it, uh, it
0: was more than that. <laughs>
1: all right, we may have recorded three hours thinking we could turn it into a podcast. Then I realized. Maybe we could just roll through the highlights of the conversation for twenty minutes instead of uh, (laughs) rehashing all three hours. Um, But there was was, there's if I'm thinking of this from a casual fans perspective, that maybe you know wants to know for their dynasty league, or I'm an Orioles fan, or or whatever. Like, who are the top guys? And just give me you know a couple sentences or a general thumbnail sketch on each of them. Uh, our top guy is Adley Rutschman, catcher from Oregon State. He is a higher feature value than everyone else on the board, so he seems like a pretty clear favorite to go 1-1 right now. We've both seen him pretty recently, and it seems like the questions around him are how good is he compared to other one-ones, and is he better, or how does he compare to Joey Bart, uh, who went second overall as a some, somewhat similar college catcher uh, this past year to the Giants out of Georgia Tech. So how do, would you answer those two questions?
0: Uh, as far as how he compares to Bart, I, I think he's pretty clearly... better prospect I mean I like Bart quite a bit Uh, I have questions about the hit tool uh with Bart he did and part of it was because he had just come off a pretty long layoff but when I first saw him here in the AZL after he signed uh there were issues as far as the contact ability was concerned uh and then of course he went to the Northwest League and destroyed it which is he should for uh an advanced college catcher who's going to short season ball like you should mash um Rushman, I just feel better that they, he's going to hit. There's not as much, like, over-the-fence power. I think there's as much raw power, but uh, just the approach is more geared for doubles, whereas Bart's like a pull-side home run hitter.
1: Yeah, Bart's Bert, like a higher-effort kind of pull um, sort of swing, whereas Rushman is more of a easy-mechanics all-field sort of thing. But, yeah, the, if they're a if they're home run derby, they might not be necessarily that different.
0: And then defensively, I think – they're they're both excellent. Bart is like the receiving is fine, the ball blocking, uh, the arm strength are both excellent, and he's got all those intangibles, the the leadership stuff. Like he was, it was impressive to watch him work with and carry some of these young, even pitchers that he that had he had a language barrier with, uh, like that were struggling. He was still encouraging and uh, helpful, and just had a clear idea of how to work hitters. AZL pitchers don't really execute, so um, that was a little bit of an issue. But, but, yeah, I think as far as Rushman is concerned with other 1-1 guys, I think the guy to line him up against is, like, the Weeders. Weider, like, like, is is he better than Weeders was when Weeders was coming out of college?
1: I mean, I, I guess neither of us really did the prospect stuff quite as intensely as we do now back then, but it seems pretty comparable.
0: Yeah, I think so, and I think Rushman's blood runs hot. Like, he's a vocal, fiery... Leader Weers has always sort of been like a slow twitch, easygoing type of personality, at least outwardly. Uh, so it's, it, But it is like it's switch hitting with this sort of very advanced defense, uh, even though Rushman hasn't really caught full time for all that long. I, I think he's really excellent. I don't think I'd have him like way up there like in the Harper stratosphere, but I think there's a chance that he ascends into that sort of – like if we had a 60 future value, what what would have to happen for us to have a 60 future value on him on draft day next spring?
1: I think given like the position and the tools and the physicality, if he just goes bonkers and is like, you know, hit, hits like um, Andrew Vaughn hit last year. And there's no, you know, basically hold serve as far as defensively and all that and, you know, athletically and all that kind of stuff. I I think that would be getting pretty close to like as high as you could put an amateur player, which I think would probably be a 60, which would currently would be what top 20 uh, on the overall prospect list. And I think right now he'd probably be like 30 or 40. So, I mean, he's not amazingly far off. There's just a lot of really good players ahead of him that you'd have to be jumping over.
0: So, yeah, I think. uh, Okay, so then the other question is what happened? who, Who could pass him and why? Like that's the other thing that I think is – I mean we have this – a bunch of 50s behind him. I think we have more 50 future values on this list right now than we did for last year's draft.
1: The thing that tends to separate one ones from top five picks in general or I guess two to five would be sort of like the ceiling to be a potential superstar. It's hard to take a guy that you don't think can be you know, a seven or an eight at that pick, or at least has the potential to do that. So in that sense, I would say that high school shortstops Bobby Witt and CJ Abrams uh, both show the tools that if they really make progress with the things they need to work on this spring, I think they have a chance to get up there. And then actually the other two shortstops that go with those guys, uh, Greg Jones at UNC Wilmington and Bryson Stott at UNLV. Jones hasn't really put it all together yet, but he might have the highest upside of all of those guys. And Stott showed that upside during last spring and then Look like a different guy this summer and was just a little out of sorts. But if if he comes back and looks like a guy that's you know at least average defensively at shortstop, left hand hitter, fifty five hit, at least fifty power, or maybe six hit, um, then I think you could make a case for that guy too. I just think I think, yeah, it's I, for, I think it's harder for the the corner limited guys to do that. Like you need a lot of track right. record and a lot of uh, you know sort of athletic in the box sort of stuff. And the guy that would kind of fit that is Andrew Vaughn. But that's gonna be tough to bite down on as like a one one.
0: I guess the thing that – you mentioned Bobby Witt Jr., uh, which sort of segues into our next – the next big draft discussion that we had while we were hashing out these rankings was, uh, is Bobby Witt going to hit? Uh, And so we've both seen Bobby Witt do incredible stuff defensively. He really runs well. He's probably one of the better athletes in the entire draft. He could be plus defensively at shortstop. He has plus power right now. I've seen him hit ball – a uh, ball out of Wrigley Field in a game. Um, but we also each saw him swinging through below-average fastballs in the zone uh, throughout the course of the summer.
1: Like legitimately worrying sort of stuff.
0: Right. So uh, the question is, like, if Bobby Witt is a three-bat, what kind of player is he? And, like, if you look at the big leagues, there are shortstops, like good defensive shortstops with power who are hitting, like, 230, uh, who still are, like, solid average everyday players. That's not the kind of player that you want to take up at one, I don't think, someone who you think is going to be that. And I'm not sure that after what we saw this summer, if he can correct that. Like, if he goes out and mashes Texas high school pitching, some teams might, but are you and I going to say, oh, you know what, I buy that he's going to hit?
1: Well, so I think some people would say, oh, well, if he hits against good Velo, but he's only going to face good Velo in, like, three games. So you are really going to take those three games to – to mean that much because, because it's the sort of stuff like when you send like special assistants and like former big league hitting coaches, because that's what these teams do when they're making these sorts of picks, especially with high schoolers, what they look for isn't your performance in one game. and It isn't like your swing mechanics. It's like, uh, how did his knees buckle when a good curveball in one of these three games against good stuff? Um, was thrown first pitch. How did his mechanics change when he hit this ball? Not did he hit it and how hard did he hit it, but like the little indicators of what would happen when he's facing 95 every day. And those aren't always super telling either. There's been plenty of guys that get like, even Royce Lewis would get some uneven looks during his spring, but gave you great looks over the summer. And then gives you great looks in pro ball. And the most recent three months you had were pretty mixed depending on who you talk to. Um, so I, I think there's a little bit uh, – like if his team happens to be an NHSI and he faces three 90-plus arms and every team has five scouts there, that's a reasonable setting to make some conclusions about is he better or worse than the summer. But it's also still like three or four games. So you really need to look at like the indicators of has he changed? Um, do I think this will work going forward? Because like if you're just you know some scout on Twitter looking at the, the velo like that or, – or sorry, looking at velo if it's a pitcher, just looking at the swing mechanics or – um, him hitting the ball a long way, like you'd like to think that's telling you something, but I don't think it's very predictive.
0: So yeah, this was the, one of the questions that I don't know if it was in the draft uh, board update post, like comment section, or if we got it tweeted at us or whatever. But someone was surprised at how low Witt was, and I guess both of like our answer is uh, we have the in like the mid, up the middle guys who we feel better about them hitting ahead of him, uh, and Greg Jones who also had the college shortstop at UNC Wilmington. He also has some bat-to-ball question marks, but he's just as tooled up as Witt, and he's a college guy. Like He's more advanced. He's he's further along, even though he is like raw. And he's um, also not
1: going to face quite as good competition as other D1 guys at uh, UNC right. Wilmington. Yeah, and then I guess just covering the last guy that was in this group, C.J. Abrams, um, he is the, uh, to for prospect people, Um, He's the more uh, explosive version of Bryce Tereng. Uh, He's a 7-runner. He has the tools to play shortstop, although he's still a little rough there, so some people think he might be second base or center field, but there's still some time to figure that out. Uh, You'll get some 80-run times occasionally. He's pretty explosive, and it it plays in all facets of his game. He's got 50 raw power. He has pretty decent ABs, pretty good bat-to-ball skills, a little bit of a more line-drive approach. He has enough power that he could stand to lift the ball a little bit more. Um, and he'll probably, you know, get a little stronger, um, generally like an an explosive version of Nick Gordon. Um, he's, you know, got similar upside to wit. Like he definitely belongs in this area. It's it's just more like, um, it's not like he has a huge question. It's more just, is he going to be shortstop, second base or center field? And is the sort of hit tool going to continue improving, which is why he's ahead of wit. Whereas wit it is, can't he hit, which is like a very sort of foundational question that we haven't really answered yet.
0: Yep. We and we also think that there's some ceiling on the power here too. Like that, Abrams might grow into average, above average raw power, and he's got like gap to gap approach right now, uh, which his raw power is suited for. But there's a chance, like one day, he might also hit for like average game power. So uh, there's there are a lot of viable pathways to success here. And yeah, he's, he's performed for me all summer and, uh, I feel pretty good about him. But I think the, I think the way that our current 50 future value list like is lined up, uh, at this stage, like we acknowledge that it could change and some of these guys could move up and down just depending on the, the spring they have.
1: But behind this and the next group we're going to talk about of uh, being in that 50 future value tier is the guy that's fifth versus the guy that's 10th that are all in the same tier if the guy that's tenth has a hot start and the guy that's fifth has a slow start, not just going off of the stats, but if the sort of consistency and you know, or the tools change, or the way that he you know has abs or the way you know his command progresses or, or whatever it is, if there is a foundational or you know underlying uh, substantive change that drives the performance, these guys could get all jumbled up after one month. Um, so they're all that close that you can. I would almost suggest that in looking at these for your own purposes, whatever they are. Um, to look at them in the tiers and say, oh, this guy's in the 3-10 to tier, um, rather than, oh, this guy's 6th. Because we could probably change our mind without a whole lot of new information a month from now. And that sort of leads us into the next group, which is another group of some of the guys in the 50 future value tier, which is uh, Andrew Vaughn, first baseman at Cal, Michael Bush, first base slash right field at North Carolina, Michael Toglia, first base right field, similar kind of guy to Bush um, at UCLA, and then Riley Green, a high school right fielder, and they're all they're all generally similar. They're all college or um, they're all corner guys, um, and they're all sort of higher floor, uh, but also not quite the ceiling you're looking for. So, who would you take out of that group?
0: Well, the way we have them lined up is essentially uh, in order of like their athleticism. Like Bush is like the best. Athlete of the group, and I think Vaughn, you know, it's a right-right first baseman with a maxed-out frame, but he is a good athlete. Like he's athletic in the box where it really matters for him. Whereas the the bottom two guys, Green, uh, I know I have some concerns about his frame. He's sort of like an odd, oddly gated athlete. Uh, and then Togli is sort of the same thing. Uh, his right-handed swing for me is not super great, but he does have some pop from that side as well. They're all all fields power guys. I think we like Vaughn and Bush. We kind of have them lined up because Bush just is going to have more defensive value because he can competently play an outfield corner. But those are those are my first two guys, uh, and I think the separator there is just that they're more athletic, they're more explosive, there's there's extra twitch there, and I would just prefer those guys long-term.
1: And I would say with the three college guys in this group, uh, Vaughn, Bush, and Toglia, because their corner guys were hit in power, are a much bigger part of their profile, I wouldn't say scout the um, the stat line, but the stat line I think will end up being more indicative of what their stock is up or down as the season goes on, uh, because they're all in major schools and major conferences, facing presumably at least on the weekends, pretty decent pitching. Um, so if a guy is doing terribly, it could you know it could be bad pip, or it could just be a bad run, or he's just you know his timing's a little off and then he fixes his timing. But it's probably also going to say, oh, the scouts that are watching those games are probably going to not be super impressed either.
0: Just to wrap the draft stuff, I guess the guy that we should talk about very quickly is Corbin Carroll, who moved way, way up this summer. Uh, everybody in the 50 Future Value tier or above on our list was kind of hanging around that area of, in our last update. And Corbin Carroll is a Seattle area high schooler who um, had, had just like the best summer of any high school hitter. Just Took terrific at bats, uh, hit for power in games. Uh, he squared 97 in the San Diego perfect game, all American game. Uh, hit it in the opposite field gap for a triple. And uh, he just, you know, he plays up the middle and sort of does everything. He's just the second lightest player on our entire 69 ranked players so far. He's 165 pounds at 5'10. And so, like, the question in the scout section in, during the summer was, like, hey, is this guy going to go in the first round? And, like, I think that it's such an obvious yes. Uh, but, you know, he's he's a smaller guy, and so there's still. That barrier, like you have to get through that barrier with some teams. I, I think he's done it. Who,
1: who do you think is the the best comp for him? I, um, I feel like last year, obviously Jared Kalenic, um, is a little different physically, but the the tools and the sort of the performance summer before are, are similar. Um, if you go Pacific Northwest, uh, Jacoby Ellsbury was you know sort of eventually turned into this sort of profile when he was I guess in his early to mid twenties. Um, is there a guy that comes to mind? To not necessarily a direct comp, uh, but a guy that sort of the overall toolset reminds you of.
0: Uh, not especially. Um, it's just
1: generally in that nexus of guys that are sixty or seventy runners that are good athletes, good body control. They have some power. They can really hit. Like there's a lot of guys generally like that.
0: When Odubel Herrera is hot, like this is what it, this is what it looks like. It's that type of uh, contact. It's that type of speed. Odubel is a little bit more curvaceous but like the physical packages (laughs) the physical packages are pretty similar to Manny Margot as a prospect was sort of like the same type of guy although Carroll I think has a little bit more feel for airborne contact than Margot did
1: so before Doobie Herrera turned into an Instagram model Corbin Carroll was sort of like that
0: is he does 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 Doobie have like an Instagram that's very popular?
1: No, you just said Curvy, which that—that's the first. Thing oh, I was that's, you that. oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the last guy, which you talked about before, but if you want to talk about Spencer Jones a little bit, you can, because um, he's he, just going down the list scene, if there's a guy that's especially unusual or is. Um, you know, hard to pin down or people might just look at the tools and the height, weight, and not necessarily understand what it is. He would probably be the example. Cause it also sounds like he would probably be in the top 30 as both the hitter and a pitcher, which is very, I mean, I guess that goes back to Brendan McKay would be the most recent good example of that.
0: Right. As, as a pitcher, he's like 88, 92, but he's a six, seven athletic lefty with a plus curve ball. Um, and so who knows what that'll turn into.
1: I mean, that's sort of what Carter Stewart was at this point last year.
0: Right. Yeah. Yep. That's true. Um, and then even like the, the, at the beginning of the year, like in February, January, February, when, uh, there's some high school showcase stuff again here in Arizona, I saw Carter Stewart at that time, uh, or maybe it was the fall before. I don't know. And he was like, yeah, he was basically like 88, 91 with that curveball, ball. And then the Velo really came along, uh, the following spring. So that could happen with Jones. Uh, but as like, if you force me to pick now, I, I draft him as a first baseman, it's six, seven plus runner underway. Who knows what the defense will be like at peak with this sort of athleticism. He's a monster target over there, and it's 55 raw power right now. He's got feel for lifting the baseball. Uh, He could grow into plus-plus raw power, and uh, he's got some feel to hit. And so it's just like this is a legit two-way prospect, I think. We have talked about this with McKay before, that I think at the very least you could draft him and continue to evaluate and develop him as each for the next year or two, just because he's going to be on an innings limit on the mound anyway. And so you can, like, split his season in half such that he, his workload is manicured on the mound, but he's also getting reps offensively. Like, there are a lot of different ways you can do this, Just even if it's just to make sure that you're that you're making the right decision as to what he is. Uh, and if he can do both, then great. So uh, he's, I think he's profoundly interesting, and I, I definitely think he's a first-round guy. Uh,
1: starting topic two... Um it's a little bit of a reach since I haven't technically uh, published the article that we're going to talk about, but the concept was: uh, who are the best organization or the organizations with the best chance to win the next five World Series? Um, and the way it worked out, the sort of top tier of seven teams that I I guess will be writing about are the who would most people would identify as the six top teams in the six at the top of each of the divisions. And then the, the seventh one would be the Yankees or Red Sox, whichever one. I, I would say the Yankees probably are a little ahead of the Red Sox in the in the five-year sense just because the uh, Yankees seem to be a little more sustained, young talent for multiple years. Anyway, so it would be uh, Dodgers, uh, Braves, and Cubs in the NL, Astros, Yankees, Red Sox, and Indians in the AL. And then there's a whole discussion about exactly where you put those guys in, and then Who's in the second tier? Who has some potential in the second tier? What are some things to look for that would move a team up or down? And the general sort of concept behind the tiebreaker would be if your only goal is to win multiple World Series, what team would you want to walk in and GM starting right now this offseason and then the four years after that? So so I guess the first question, Eric, would be, like, what what sort of things would you look for if you were in that position? And, like, I guess what would be most important? Because obviously we could talk about a whole bunch of, like, signing and developing amateur players and stuff like that, but you're obviously trying to the big league level, so there's there's other things.
0: I guess ownership's willingness to spend money... And ownership's uh, – like a laissez-faire ownership with deep pockets is like what I'd be looking for as a general manager. Um,
1: so you're hoping for David Appleman?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's clear like the organizations that have dysfunction or that are subject to a lot of scrutiny are ones where uh, there's like um, ownership medals – and or there's a, there's not a willingness to spend money on some of the underlying foundational stuff that really makes like franchise like what the Yankees are doing sustainable, and that includes like pumping money into R and D and player development, scouting comprehensively, and these are all things that. A lot of organizations don't do, uh, and so like, it's, it's, that's the main thing for me. And then, of course, the talent that's already in the organization at the big league level and beneath it, uh, and realistically just beneath it, those are factors as well. Uh, if you're asking me, like, who, who what team do you want to work for? It's a team with, like, ownership. Ownership's qualifications are most important. And then, you know, there's other stuff too, like where you're living. Like, I just wouldn't want to live in St. Louis, like no offense, it just would. But they want to have be the best there. fans in baseball. Yeah, they're so great, and it's so awesome when it's seven thirty p.m. and you want to eat there, and there's nothing to do.
1: Which I'll say doesn't <laughs> impact what I'm doing, but it would impact what a hypothetical Eric
0: would be doing. Hypothetical general Man- manager Eric. So yeah, I think that you know the list of clubs that that. I'd want to work for the ones who you mentioned already, the Yankees. I think they're certainly ahead of Boston just because Boston's farm system is so far behind uh, what New York is doing. You know, Tampa has all this talent uh, on the farm system, and they're obviously more competitive than anyone would have anticipated right now. Uh, but that's not exactly a great ownership situation. I wouldn't want you to have to work within those financial constraints cleveland is definitely way up there for me as well i don't know i think anaheim's the one area where uh there's there's a there's a combination of of these things and i know that they're just sort of hovering around 500 and they can't quite get over this hump uh, and they've been disappointing at the big league level several times and some of that uh, you know they have the best player on the planet um, albert pujols and, yep but i think from a farm system standpoint they've moved up pretty significantly since just a few years ago a lot of the pitching has developed beyond our expectations jose suarez has moved more quickly griffin canning has moved more quickly than we anticipated jaime Berea, same thing so like uh it seems like there's something there and there are already pieces in place i think that's the one that you didn't mention that i'd throw up there and then atlanta too i mean uh, all the talk about gaming service time for these high-end prospects and it's totally warranted like we should rattle some chains about, like, this sort of stuff as a populace. Uh, but, like, Atlanta, they all their kids, they, they moved them quick. You know, Acuna was up right away. All of the young pitching, Tukey and Soroka and all these guys were given opportunities uh, this year. That's the sort of thing where it's just like, hey, this is ultimately a monetary issue down the line that we just don't care about because we're a competitive club. Like, those are the sorts of things that I think are good situations to be in. If you're running an organization.
1: Well, I think the, the funny part in the Atlanta instance is that they still did the 11 days with Acuna to get the extra year, which, ended, you know, that's sort of like, I think, the least evil way. If a guy's almost ready, you don't bring him up in September and then call him up 11 days in April. Like, in the scheme of things, it doesn't make that much of a difference for the player or for your team, probably, unless you miss the playoffs by one game. And then you get a whole extra year in the guy's prime. Whereas, like, doing the Super 2 and, you know, keeping Vlad Jr. down when he was ready the whole season, like, those are a little more sinister. But also, with all those pitchers, uh, I think, A, it's easier to call up a pitcher at a not necessarily advantageous time just because if they get hurt or whatever, it won't really matter if you get that extra year or when they get to arbitration. And the other thing is, I think they just had too many pitchers that would have just been left in AAA if they didn't call them up that they kind of had to call these guys up and be like, well, we might trade, you know, Tehran or. You know, or newcomer, or whoever it is. And so we need to know which guys we have that we can rely on. We got to give them all a chance and just see if one of them is going to, like, you know, shit their pants when they get in the big leagues. And if they do, then send them back down to AAA and kind of work on it and see if they can come back. And I think they just needed to find out that information about all these various pitchers they have because they still have too many of them and now they're all. Yeah. sort of big league quality and I think they still don't know what to do with them but they have a better idea now than if none of them got called up and they just kept, you know, running, you know, Dan Winkler and Sam Freeman and guys like that through when you kind of know what you're going to get and there's not a lot of upside.
0: Do you think San Diego did something similar this year with some of the rookie arms especially that they brought up to sort of try to see what they have? They've got a 40-man crunch coming already. There's a lot of uh big league worthy talent might not be big league ready but it's big league worthy that's that's rule five eligible this offseason that they there's going to be a bit of a crunch already even though the team is not competitive do you think that like lauer and uh lucchese and yeah. those guys coming up pretty aggressively it has to do with them trying to sift through some of these guys yeah and i think
1: it also probably if i'm in AJ preller's position like i don't necessarily want to keep signing one-year veterans to six million dollar deals to be a starting pitcher when you know you have the aces and you know the minors and or hopefully you do and you know gore and all you know patino and all these guys are coming up but then like lucchese and lauer aren't supposed to be your one your two or your three they're more the four to five maybe three if things go great so they're another example like i've used with peter alonso where it's like right right like not athletic first baseman that might turn into a dh like year seven he's going to be 30 that guy might not even get a big league deal if he's a free agent like there's no reason to screw with his service time and i feel like these you know, touch and feel lefty starters, like they necessarily don't usually like age well into their thirties. And so if you're a college pick or in Lucchese's case, I think he was a college senior at age 22. I think he was getting there at age 24. It's like six versus seven years is probably not going to matter. Like if he's good now, take him now. And that might save you $6 million next year, which then if you, you know, save it again the next year or whatever, like that might be a real amount of money to throw to an extension to one of your key players. And, you know, that, that could end up making a difference. Whereas I think holding them down and playing this game with every single player and trying to maximize everything, and as some friends in the industry call uh, becoming service time champs, that's like the shorthand for (laughs) making it into a game to get the service time perfect for everybody. It's like, it's only going to matter for a couple guys anyway. You're doing it in the hopes that the one that you kind of screw around with is the one that will make a big monetary difference. Where like the Braves of the Cunha, like I said, it's like a a not very sinister way to know that you're going to get a big return for not that much risk and other teams are going to do more flagrant things later in the year. So the PR ends up not being that bad and the team made the playoffs and Acuna was fantastic and everything worked out hunky-dory. But yeah, I don't think it's always as cut and dry as like, you know, a robot McKinsey uh, consultant would tell you that you should do this with every player or like every player that comes up should immediately get a five-year extension and lock them in if you think they're any good. And it's just like, No, sometimes you just want to see what you got. Sometimes, you know, a year or two into their career, you have a much better idea of what they're going to be, and and that's a better way to sort of handle things than try to guess everything when they're in the minors.
0: I also don't think executives have six years' worth of job security on average. Like, you're essentially yeah, – you're sort of cutting off your nose to spite your face a little bit, like –
1: that's what I'm saying. It, like, it, I think you can call it service time champions because it's like you're getting a year of control for the guy that's going to have your job after you get fired because you didn't call this guy up on time. Like, the only right. the, the only solace you have is that you, like, won some sort of service time championship. Like, that's how silly the whole concept is.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I think there's – I think that our next CBA negotiations are going to be graphic.
1: <laughs> well, there's also, like, so many things in the sort of service time lining up um, incentives area that there isn't a clear answer. Like, I imagine in a future podcast, we'll have a discussion about what needs to be addressed in the new CBA, and it seems, like, obvious that this process needs to change in some way. I think everyone agrees on that. And there's been a bunch of different articles written by different people. Maybe we'll have one or many of them on to talk about it, but there's no, like, obvious solution because I think they would have gotten to that already.
0: It's going to be interesting because, in part, two, because the way player usage is changing, what makes sense... For the players, or any, or either side, uh, right now, as far as negotiations are concerned, like what makes sense for them, CBA wise, might be different three years from now than it is right now. Like what you for arbitration and stuff like that, like uh, all this stuff could change. I think it's going to take some forward-thinking uh, people anticipating what teams are going to do with like you know the opener and pitcher usage in general uh, to try to figure out how best to configure the next cba for their side of the bargaining table
1: we're on a road toward ryan yarborough getting a record 20 million dollars in arbitration because of all <laughs> the wins he's racked up this year. all the wins he's the reason the rays have jumped out like our, our prospects are use. our prospect lists
0: are useless because we didn't see this coming um I, I think the union took a step in the right direction by hiring lawyers <laughs> Oh, the people that
1: are in a huge fight with some of the best lawyers on earth, they hired lawyers this time. <laughs> great, great job by them. Great idea. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe this had ever didn't happen, but, you know, congratulations. Uh, going back to the, I guess, sort of the ranking the teams concept. So I was obviously at a Yankees, um, yeah, spoiler alert for the listeners, we're recording this in two different days. So today, the second day, Wednesday, when we're recording this, I was at a Yankees Instructional League game. And for whatever reason, for a Yankees road game at uh, Toronto – They had, like, 30 um, team-affiliated people there. Like, their amateur scouts were there, the front office people were there, Player development people were there. I think there were more Yankees people than either Yankees players, Blue Jays players, or scouts from all the other teams combined. It was just sort of odd. So being that I have some, you know, connections there, I was kind of bouncing around watching the game and chatting with people. And one of the people I talked to uh, with the Yankees, I was saying, you know, we write a lot of positive things because people – You know, see how you get July 2 guys that are higher on our list for lower than the the names around them. They see, you know, a bunch of guys that sign for no money, like high on your prospect list. And, uh, you know, a lot of young guys in the big leagues that are succeeding. And, like, I want to be able to say that, you know, this is fluky or they're not that much better than everybody else. Because it seems insane to say that this team's better than everybody else at, you know, like so many things. And I was telling this guy, I was like, I don't think you guys necessarily have any, like, process stuff or super-duper advanced stats or some sort of secret nobody knows about, but I think the information you have is generally, like, out there, and the process isn't necessarily different than anyone else's. It's just the, like, execution of the process and the communication between the departments um, is good, and that I think on our last podcast, we talked about teams where there's, you know, been some changes or, you know, it hasn't been wholesale changes, but they fired five pro scouts that, you know, they're getting five different ones or whatever. And I was like, you never hear that with you guys, at least the last couple of years, like basically the other 29 teams, either this year or last year had some sort of like a uh, meaningful restructuring of some kind. And you never hear, like, oh, yeah, the Yankees are kind of in trouble. This guy hates that guy, and they're going to fire some people because they're not with this guy. And they're really having some trouble between these two departments. And, they, you know, they might look for a change at you know, this director. Like, they're one of, like, the only teams where you don't hear that. Plus, they have a ton of money and pretty good players. And so that's why I feel like them and, like, the Dodgers and maybe Cleveland, um, possibly Atlanta, were where you have sort of all the elements there. I think the Yankees and Dodgers have the most amount of money. You can argue Atlanta has like a little better in terms of like core and then a little less money. And then Cleveland could be in that same area where they have, uh, you know, the two biggest trade assets in baseball, Lindor and Ramirez, and obviously a little less money than the Yankees and Dodgers. And it'll be interesting seeing, at least those two teams getting Yankees and Dodgers getting under the luxury tax to get into this offseason, if they sign, you know, Harper Machado Donaldson, all these sorts of guys, do they go way over to where they really flex their, you know, spending power on sort of on field, big leaguers, or do they just sign one of them, maybe go over a little bit, pay a little bit of a tax and then still sort of reinvest in all these lower level operations and scouting. Um, Cause there, I will say that from what I've heard from the Yankees, they're, they're going to change up some of their amateur scouting in a way that will be more costly. And the guy that told me, is, I was like, oh, one of the reasons I think teams don't do it this way is it would cost more money for like travel. He's like, yeah, no, it would. <laughs> and we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this is exactly what smart teams with money should be doing.
0: Yeah, there are there are teams who uh, are actively trying to find ways of how to save money and replicate some facsimile of that. Those, that, those teams are growing in number because I think the people who have figured out ways of doing that and can run an organization, the number of those people is growing. Uh, But yeah, I mean, ultimately, they're still going to be a half a step behind, at least, teams like this who are willing to invest. Yeah, and then from
1: the second tier uh, that I included on our little rundown here, of Milwaukee, Philly, the Angels you already mentioned, St. Louis, and then the two, like, I guess we'll call them micro-payroll teams, Oakland and Tampa, that both have a nice group of talent right now. Which of those do you think could work their way into this first tier, or, or did uh, none of
0: them? Yeah. I mean, you can argue Oakland and table will never be
1: there just because of the payroll constraints.
0: I suppose Philadelphia is like a candidate for it because there's a lot of TV money and the organization is still in flux as far as uh, like philosophically from the top to the bottom, like all aspects of the organization scouting and player dev now, especially are changing. So you know, if there are significant improvements made in those areas, then I could see them ascending. They certainly have the money to do it. Um, so uh, I guess that would be my pick. They also have a lot of young talent at the big league level. That's I don't think is fully baked yet. Like I think some of the young guys, some of whom disappointed this this season, still have plenty of growth left. You know, we're we're talking about all these guys are going to be around for a half a decade yet. Uh, Kingery, Crawford, Alfaro, and Williams and there's a lot of young talent, um, so I think that's the team that could that could move up. And they've got they've had success in Latin America, casting a a wide net, uh, assigning a lot of lower bonus guys like uh, you know two hundred fifty three hundred k guys, um, or even lower so, for Sixto Sanchez. Yeah, so uh, like that's how I think that's if I were trying to build a farm system, I'd want to do it with volume. Uh, and throw all this volume into a good player development system, and I think that's what we might see there. You know, so uh, that that that's my pick from that second tier down to move up. But of course, I already kind of have Anaheim up in my first tier, so they they deserve a mention there as well.
1: And if I wanted to rebuild your haircut from scratch, I think I would also do it with volume.
0: Uh, that might happen on Saturday.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was actually looking through the, the looking through that list. I also had Philly and the Angels. I feel like the Angels, if Otani is i guess once he's completely healthy and is hitting in pitching at some level and pujols is off the books in some way and some of this talent that's in the lower minors gets closer to where it's at least um you know so fully baked where you can trade it if you need to or maybe joe Adele is up uh i think they've got a chance um because i think similar to some stuff you're saying with philly they're in the they're at some point along the way of remaking the organization that w- had sort of not falling into disrepair, but just like a little not with the times. They're obviously, it sounds like they're going to pick a new manager at some point. Um, Philly, I, I think this could be a very um, interesting uh, 12 months for the NL East because it obviously seems like the Braves are ascending here. And Washington has, uh, what is it, Murphy? Well, I guess Gio Gonzalez got Murphy, traded sure. already and then yeah. Harper as free agents. And I don't know if they're going to basically spend all the money they were spending this year and just go get different players or maybe some of the same ones. Or are they going to, you know, sort of take a step back and let, you know, Robles and Soto and Michael Taylor and, you know, Rendon and all, and just sort of fill in with whoever they've got internally and some short-term free agents? Um, if they do something like a little more subdued and, you know, maybe lower payroll a little bit, and then Philly goes out and does the stuff that's been sort of rumored, like they could get Machado and Harper, and apparently they... Uh, the. Um, Rosenthal reported that everyone other than Nola and Hoskins is up for trade, like they would consider trading anyone else. I'm like, they could, they have enough sort of pieces and money and, or at least hypothetical payroll that hasn't necessarily been spent yet, but may get spent soon where they could be like shooting up to catch up with the Braves pretty quickly. And Washington could be like well behind them. Or Washington could just sort of reload, spend all the same money, and Phillies just like continues to be one year away. Like the, the those could go in; those two teams could go in very different directions. Where I guess we kind of know where the Marlins and the Braves are going to be, and the Mets we just sort of assume will continue treading water, given the way that they're going back to what you said about ownership. When you have bad ownership, yeah. like we're going to assume Baltimore's not going to have a dramatic turnaround and make the playoffs the next three years in a row, both because of the division they're in, but also like you still have a poisoned head as far as we know it in both of those places
0: every i think all three nl divisions are going to be very crowded two three uh teams up top for the next couple of years and we haven't mentioned arizona yet who uh has decisions to make as well like patrick corbin paul goldschmidt pollock uh yeah aj pollock uh goldschmidt will probably have his option picked up but you know that's, that's and a then also if they let them all deal. walk
1: you've got grinky on a huge deal that you might want to move at that point so he, he kind of becomes yep. a decision as
0: well so yeah, it's gonna be. I think it's gonna be very interesting in the NL, and I think uh, the American League. We've got these uh, impoverished interlopers in Tampa Bay and in Oakland, and otherwise, I think like the, the upper crust of the teams for the next couple of years is pretty cut and dry.
1: Yeah, and I feel like if you took Oakland and Tampa's talent, like from top to bottom, you know, minors and big leagues, I think mean, Tampa's a little better if we go top to bottom, and put it in like St. Louis with like that sort of payroll. Like I think mm-hmm. they would be in the first tier, but. The fact that St. Louis yeah. has like pretty good talent and pretty good money and a pretty good team right now and some young guys and some older guys and like a little bit of money to spend, but like not fantastic. Um, I I could see them you know you know getting hot and getting up there because they have a little bit of um, of ceiling to what they're doing. But like Oakland and Tampa, like I can't imagine them ever being in that first tier because it's just always going to be teams with comparable talent and more money or just way more money and maybe inferior talent.
0: Where- Do you think we're underselling Toronto, who has sort of accumulated a bunch of Okay pieces, big league roster crunch guys like Billy McKinney and Brandon Drury and David Paulino and Aled Miz Diaz and Teoscar Hernandez. Like they've just sort of accumulated all these guys who are probably forty fives or fifties, and then they have these stars coming up in Vlad Junior and what we think Bobochette is probably going to be, and we think Danny is going to be very good. Maybe Nate Garson, we'll see. Yeah, who knows what Nate Pearson's gonna, and Anthony Offord might turn into? Like, are we sort of underselling their ability to uh, insert themselves into at least like a postseason discussion over the next three years? I think we might be.
1: Yeah, I, I hesitate. I didn't put them, I guess, formally in the in the second tier as we have it right now. I'm sure what we're discussing may be a little different by the time the article comes out. I guess because they're losing uh, Donaldson, but. Um, I, eh and and they haven't, like, been fantastic this year, it's like, all right, how good is their... And they're, I guess they already traded Jay Happ. Like, how good is their big league team going to be, like, next season with two guys that have no big league service time? But I think the part I may be underselling here is that they have a lot of money to spend. I mean, it might be sort of Philly-level upside where they're just maybe one year behind them, that if, you know, Vlad and Bichette do, like, a Hoskins and Nola thing next year, and then all of a sudden they think they've got a window opening and they go spend some money in free agency, then are they, you know securely in the second tier with a chance to jump in the first tier when all this stuff happens. I I think there's a chance that's true. Um, And I think Minnesota's another team we did mention that, like, has sort of uh, overhauled infrastructure moving in the right direction. Obviously, they've got Kirilov and Royce Lewis coming. Um, A little bit of a hiccup this year with the big league team. And, you know, something's not going perfectly uh, with, you know, Sano and some other pieces. But I think if they have, like, another good year of bringing talent into the system and and Moving in the right direction, like um, at least Toronto is you know, they're in a division with Tampa, Boston, and the Yankees. Like, that's going to be a real uphill battle. You got to win, you know, at least 88 to 90 games to make the playoffs there, maybe more. Minnesota's just got Cleveland there, so you know, yeah. Cleveland has a tough season. I could see Minnesota sliding in there with obviously a lot of former Cleveland executives,
0: and they had a good deadline, in my opinion, too. Celestino, yeah, and they Leandre. seem like they have a direction.
1: A lot of these teams, you're not clear, it's not clear what they're doing, and I think you can tell what yeah. Minnesota's doing. Yep, I agree. All right then. I guess I can go finish this article. Uh, topic three is, uh, I guess we'll call. I called it Super Mesa Brothers because we've got two Mesa Brothers, and when I see you know M Brothers, you got to say Super. And we also have uh, they're, they're Cuban. We'll get to them in a second. We also have Sandy Gaston a July two. Uh, Cuban defector arm who looked like he was going to sign for a bunch of money with a team and then now hasn't. So he's also still a free agent. So why don't you uh, run down these three guys real quick?
0: What's interesting about the two Mesa brothers is that they are like the Gurriel brothers, sort of like a Cuban baseball family um, with well, roots so well established within the culture in Cuba that it was... It was not a given that they were ever going to come over, or that they were going to come over for quite a while. Now, obviously, over the last half decade or so, uh, we've had like a huge exodus from Cuba for like a lot of different reasons, uh, as far as like baseball talent is concerned. And some of it was uh, our relationship as a nation with Cuba had changed, and some of it was uh, Cuban baseball players. And people who are invested in their financial success, sometimes that's Cuba itself, uh, saw kind of saw the writing on the wall that eventually we were going to move from the system that gave, that paid well, how much for Moncada? How much did Moncada got get uh, when you include the I think tax? It was Sixty-five with the tax. Okay, so we went from the best guy on the open market getting that to what Otani got, which was three million, and so uh, because. Cuban baseball players anticipated that they all rushed over here and so most of the talent that we see coming out of Cuba now is just 16 years old Uh, it's OCL Rodriguez who uh, we had we had uh, the the Yankees signed like it's fresh faces it's not established yeah your Alvarez Uh, was
1: a guy with no track record that signed at 16 yeah that those Uh, are the guys that have signed most recently I guess other than Luis Robert and Moncada
0: Right, so yeah, the the guys who have played in Series Nacional for a while and are like well-established stars in Cuba, they're, those don't exist anymore as far as uh, major league baseball prospects are concerned. And so, uh, Sandy Gaston, we is a is a big-bodied, like big, mature, physical, almost to the point where he, he, he's too large uh, for some scouts. Uh, was a right-handed pitcher who we anticipated would sign with Miami. Uh, it seems like something happened there that deal fell through. Uh, it's just a power righty arm uh, with not a super great delivery, and, uh, and like then, definitely present twenty command. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then Victor Mesa, who we've got some uh, good video of up on the on the YouTube channel. You know, it's just your typical center field prospect. It's like with uh, contact speed. Uh, defense, a flat plane swing, but there's raw power in there, so there might be in-game power. And, yeah, he's pretty interesting, and I don't know a whole lot about his younger brother. How much do you have on his younger brother?
1: Uh, I ran into some international guys at games and asked them about him, and they're like, yeah, he's got some tools. Like, at center field, he can run. He's an athlete. There's a little bit of pop. He's a smaller guy, but he's just sort of out of control and not real disciplined at the plate. So, like anyone – I mean, I'm assuming that whoever signs Victor Victor will sign Victor Junior as well, and it sounds like he's like a perfectly fine like six figure player, but he's not 16, and I think he's 18 or 19, and it's just you know not not quite as polished as you'd like it to be given a guy that you know
0: has these sort of bloodlines and stuff. As far as teams go that have money uh, left to spend during this international signing period, it's Baltimore has. Five and a half million uh, left of their their pool. Remember, these pools are hard capped now. Uh, the Marlins have four point one million. The Cubs have three. The Dodgers have two point seven. The Rays have about two million. The Mariners have one point five, and the Mets have one point three. And the Mets acquired a significant chunk of that from Oakland in the Juris Familia trade. So, I guess the question is how do you sort of line up the favorites for these guys slash are there any where does where does all this money that doesn't get spent on these three guys go i guess that's the interesting thing that's we just don't know yet
1: yeah there's i mean there's always the chance that another Cuban player materializes, which, you know, given that most of these guys don't have a profile before they defect, um, there's no way to really know who that will be. There's there's not, like, Luis Robert was, like, kind of the last guy that everyone knew would get a bunch of money that were waiting for him to leave. and Oh, I guess Victor Victor also, because I guess some people didn't know if he would leave. They kind of knew Robert would leave at some point. There's yeah. not a guy to wait on. So, the, yeah, if somebody pops up, it's not necessarily going to be because everybody knew this guy was coming. And there's always, like, some 17-, 18-year-old kind of, you know, late-popping-up guys that'll sign for, like, five, six hundred k. Um, But if we're talking, like, sort of the million-dollar, like, guys that are known right now, like, it's pretty much just these two guys. Um, so, I mean, there, there's always shifts in the market. I'm sure there's going to be one guy we're not talking about now that'll get some money. And there's obviously money left in the market, so it's got to go somewhere. But, it, like, it wouldn't shock me if, like, some of these teams with money try to go you know, go to Japan or Korea and try to find some guy that was, you know, written off on the J2 period. But, you know, seems like more of a prospect now because I'm not, I'm not sure there's going to be a huge money guy. There might just be a bunch of two and $300,000 guys that might be kind of where this money goes. So obviously the big, you know, closer to the big leagues, like possibly everyday premium talent and Victor Victor, like getting that guy, if you're Baltimore for $5 million where nobody else can come within a million of you or even just four and a half for that reason, that seems like a pretty easy decision. Like it, I would imagine this guy if he was, you know, in the market that Luis Robert was in like would get 10 million with a 10 penalty, like maybe 8. Like I guess it depends yeah. exactly when he hits the market. Like there there was definitely some talk that like, you know, Lazarito or um Eddie Julio could have gotten like 8 or 10 in like the right market at the right time after the right workout. And I and I think if there was a more robust market, one of those guys could have gotten that. And I think they both got 3 something. Um so I think this guy being older and closer to the big leagues, I think it's pretty easy to say he would have cleared five with a five penalty. Um, If he was a free agent, it might've been doubled that. So, I mean, you're getting essentially such a discount and like a gift of the timing. And then the fact you didn't spend your money on Baltimore's case, because you normally don't. And now there's like sort of a shift in the front office and now they suddenly want to spend some money and this guy falls in your lap. Like like it's not a, a tiny level, but it is, you know, some pretty good fortune.
0: How much of this money do you think is earmarked for players in Mexico that can't sign right now?
1: That's another one where there seems to be like sort of seven-figure like J two talents out of Mexico like every couple of years there's a guy, and I don't know if there's a guy on the market right now or I guess not on the market that would come on the market at some indeterminate point in the future. Yeah, I mean it's possible that some of these teams holding out with money like have a, a plan B of this group of you know overage or two or three hundred thousand dollar guys and we'll just sign five or six of them. Or if if Mexico opens up, then we got these guys locked up. It wouldn't surprise me if there is a guy like that, that teams have already laid out those plans, given that the sort of high-end players are starting to dry up.
0: I also suppose the two players in Japan that are interested, and there are more, but the two I was speaking with someone most recently about are uh, Yusei Kikuchi, who's 27 and not subject to uh, these bonus restrictions. And then a 37-year-old American guy from a- Arizona named D- Dennis uh, Sarfate. Do you know anything about this guy?
1: Yeah, he throws in the upper 90s now. And he's, t- he's turned yeah, down so, coming over a couple times. Uh, him and yes. uh, Scott uh, – crap, what is it? It was a Canadian guy that used to play for the Phillies. Matheson? In- yeah. I saw When I was Scott in Matheson? Japan, I saw him and he was like mid-90s with three pitches that are all above average. and. He had turned down coming over, too, because I, I think the money is, like, pretty good over there when you're, like, you know, 8th, ninth inning yeah. guy.
0: Zarfate has – I'm looking at his numbers right now. This uh, 2017, 66 innings, 102 strikeouts against 10 walks. I mean, it's funny that, like, guys will dominate 37. there. Well, like,
1: there are relievers, like, you know, Latin or American guys that go over there that dominate that were, like, kind of 4A guys. And, like, they usually improve a little bit, but they don't, especially the relievers, don't necessarily change a whole lot. That I don't know. It's weird because there's not a lot of strikeouts in in the MPB because it's, like, so many, like, contact-oriented type bats. Um, And so I think guys that just throw 100 when the rest of the league throws, you know, closer to, like, you know, 90 to 94, I think they have a little more success than, like, maybe even in AAA where these guys are, you know, often in the big leagues and are seeing 100 a lot.
0: I guess this is – I'll mention uh, Emily Walden from The Athletic tweeted several weeks ago now that uh, Victor Victor was going to uh, – she says Orioles Orioles are close to deal with Cuban outfielder Victor Victor Mesa. This was in late July. Well, um,
1: if, I'm, if I'm their agent I, at that point, I would have been talking to them because or- they have the most money. So if they want to give me a number sure. – higher than the second most money, then why would you not agree to a deal? What more could you possibly get? And then Baltimore (laughs) sent away some of their money (laughs) almost as like, uh, well, you can't have our whole pool as long as we give you X, whatever number the second biggest pool is plus $1. You should technically just take it right away.
0: I suppose there, I would assume that there are other considerations beyond just the initial financial compensation. I guess if you're looking for somewhere to play quickly, that's probably it. You know, like Adam Jones has yeah, moved he, to a corner already and stuff. Yeah, I guess you could say, like,
1: would you take a million dollars less to go to the Marlins where you're more marketable and, like, a bigger Cuban audience and you might get to arbitration one year earlier, in which case that million dollars gets recouped pretty fast. And it's art. you know, you'll have enough money to, like, live, you know, comfortably enough on. Yeah, I, I could see them taking less money to go to a clearly better situation but it's not like the Orioles or Marlins are either of them so good that they're not going to call him up when he's ready. I could see the Rays, you know, they, I guess they have some money too. The, to me, that would be so, um, there'd be so much of like a a, a glut of players ahead of you. I, I would not take comparable money from them if I had it from the Orioles or Marlins.
0: So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, the, both the Mesa brothers have been declared free agents by MLB. Uh, and Gaston, Victor. I think, is like a
1: pretty good... You know, consolation prize to get a 16 year old that throws 97 with a pretty decent breaking ball.
0: Sure, yeah. Um, I just don't know if there's. I mean, we talked about guys in Mexico who might have deals in place, but just cannot sign yet because of like the holding pattern that MLB has banned teams from signing Mexican baseball players essentially because the Mexican Um,
1: teams are like very shady in how they handle everything, which has been known for a while, and I think eventually MLB was like. If we're really going to crack down on like package deals and spotty uh, ways of like accounting for money, like we can't sanction an entire country where that's the only kind of deals that happen.
0: Right. Uh, the Mexican teams uh, were, ta- were taking – and this people knew this uh, – a portion of the bonus paid to the players and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but all that counted against an individual team's bonus pool is what the player themselves received – So you were getting like... Which was usually 25%. Right. You were getting like a $2 million player and it only counted against 500K of your pool. Uh, And some teams were exploiting this loophole pretty heavily. Like the Cubs and Dodgers have both been very active uh, in Mexico and signed a lot of... The Padres got our
1: with that. did they, or Was that in the year that they went over or is it the year after? It was the year that they went over. Oh, okay. So it ended up not being that big of a deal, but they saved... Right, but yeah, you
0: can do it when, like, you know... Uh, when you're in the three hundred thousand dollar penalty box, I mean that doesn't really exist anymore. There haven't but, been
1: that many. There haven't been that many Mexican players worth more than one point two million. So essentially, every team had access to the one point two million dollar and lower player. Uh, which is kind of silly, but you know.
0: yeah, it's it's silly. But and I believe um,
1: didn't, isn't that didn't the Cubs get Isaac Paredes, who eventually now is with Detroit and and the top fifty prospects in baseball? Wasn't he a one point two million when they were in the penalty guy?
0: I think so. And they I they've been crushing it. Like, um Paredes is interesting. They've got a bunch of uh, advanced pitching from Mexico. Jose Albertos has like the yips or whatever, but um he's really talented. Paredes Luis Verdugo
1: sorry, Parades got eight hundred K that year. Okay. It, it does appear they were in the penalty.
0: Luis Verdugo's a, a shortstop they have like a plus defensive shortstop with some physical projection who can't hit right now. Uh, he got 1.2 million. I don't know how to pronounce it. I just pronounce it uh, Ravage. <laughs> it's Javier Orcia? backwards. Yeah, his first name is Javier backwards. That kid was 16 years old in the A.Z.L. Uh, this year and can really hit. Like, there's some interesting prospects coming over from Mexico and they can't sign right now. Um, and so. some of the
1: some of the ways the Mexican teams got their cut. Like, I I heard some stories where. Um, because typically what would happen is once you're you know, 14 or 15 and you're good, the Mexican team sign you. They do some developing, but basically become your Buscone late in the process and then get 75% of your bonus, which some people think Buscone's doing three or four years of work and getting 35% is too much in the Dominican. Uh, there have been some stories I've heard of players not having signed with any Mexican league team until they're like 15, and then the teams sort of extort them and say, we're going to make sure you can't sign with a big league team until you sign with us, and then they get 75% of their bonus like months before they were going to sign anyway. And it was like that sort of stuff was happening. It was just ripe to there. There's a lot of ways to break rules just beyond the unsavoryness of the way that the deals were happening in the first place. Uh, and correction, it appears Paredes signed in the year they got Ademon for two million. So it was they were not Ooh, in the penalty that too. year. But they uh, could have. I think. Uh, I think that's uh, that's all we got there. Yep. All right. Well, that is all for this episode of. I guess we're going to call it the entitled McDonaghigan okay. project for now. Sure. So. Yeah, that's all for this week. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week. Like, how many people on Earth are like motivated to go to these things that we're talking about? Like, all excited about like, oh, I got to go to Yankees Instructs today, and I saw Nolan Martinez, Davey Garcia. All right, this guy sucks. That guy sucks. That guy sucks. I'm only 20 minutes until that guy comes up, and then I'll probably get nothing out of that at bat.
0: Yeah, there just has to be the a specific thing wrong with you. There are enough of us